0: This
2: is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jim Milstein, and he has a fascinating history, uh, not just in the world of corporate restructuring, but related to the financial crisis and the restructuring of AIG and a variety of other um, debacles. Uh, he's had a front row seat too. Uh, if you are at all a student of how companies go bad and what we do with them afterwards, you're going to find this uh, to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. He has a deep expertise in this space, starting out at Cleary Gottlieb, going to Lazard Freres, launching his own. Uh, firm uh, Milstein and Company, which was recently purchased by Guggenheim Securities, and dead center in the middle of that, being the chief restructuring officer at the Treasury Department uh, in the middle of the bailouts, 09, 10, 11. So I found this to be an absolutely uh, intriguing conversation, and I suspect you will as well. With no further ado, my conversation with Jim Milstein. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jim Milstein. He is the co-chairman of Guggenheim Securities. Uh, He comes to us with a bachelor's from Princeton, a master's from Berkeley. He graduated with a degree in law from Columbia. Currently, he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center, but perhaps most interesting for our purposes, he was the chief restructuring officer at Treasury from 2009 to 2011, responsible for oversight and management of Uncle Sam's largest financial sector rescues. Indeed, he was the principal architect of the restructuring of American International Group. Jim Milstein, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here. Thanks. So, you have a fascinating background. You begin your career as a lawyer at at Cleary Gottlieb. What did you imagine your career was going to look like when you first started as an attorney?
1: Well, like many attorneys, I kind of wandered into my first job without a real um, clear vision of what I was going to do. But, um, you know, Reagan had gotten elected. I had spent uh, a couple of years out of Berkeley being a policy analyst and working on what was then called industrial policy, which Mm -hmm. was something that the United States... Probably implements only through the Defense Department, right. uh, and, um, but we had been part of a small group of scholars who were trying to urge the United States to deal with the then-Japanese threat to our electronics and semiconductor and steel and automobile industries by actually coordinating tariff trade tax uh, and investment policy to... Sort of, sort of
2: the way Trump is doing now. Uh,
1: well, yeah. Uh, Maybe not quite... Not so a, coordinated. As structured, but... Yeah. And, but the uh, basic
2: premise is we should be proactive here.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, other countries are, right? We were dealing with a mercantilist nation in Japan, really Germany the same after World War II. Mm-hmm. China is obviously now engaged in the, the same kinds ahead. of... Years ahead. Yeah, the same kinds of behavior, but they've all learned from each other. You know the Koreans learned from the Japanese. The Chinese learned from both of them, and they have a coordinated policy of credit, investment, tax, trade, uh, in order to promote domestic uh, employment and production. And you know the United States, we've taken a more free market, hands-off, laissez-faire approach, and you can see the consequences now, um, as we find ourselves in a much more competitive environment. Anyway, long story short, spent a lot of a couple of years working on those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Reagan gets elected, we're now in the, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, dismantle, the welfare state uh, industrial policy is probably the never gonna be on that agenda. Mm-hmm. So I determined instead of going back to Washington and working in the government, I'm gonna work for a liberal international law firm, Cleary Gottlieb, uh, that helped create uh, the predecessor to the European Union uh, after World War II. A group of, it was founded by a group of State Department, um, uh, officials in Paris and Washington simultaneously, and they helped create the Iron and
2: Steel Union, which was the precursor of the EU. So how do you transition from Cleary Gottlieb to Lazard-Freres? That doesn't seem like a natural path. Well, I had been
1: working on uh, the... Pan- Lazard and Cleary shared a client called Pan American Airways, which was the dominant international carrier in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Pan Am. The United States, pan Am and uh, disappeared into the dustbin of history. But uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was the dominant international carrier for the United States. It um, fell on hard times as uh, markets were deregulated and they found themselves uh, subject to competition they really couldn't handle because they were a a product of a regulated industry. And um, they ultimately went bankrupt. Lazard and um, Cleary shared it. It was my first big debtor case as a lawyer. Uh, running, in effect, an orderly liquidation of Pan Am, selling its roots off to United and to American and hither and yon. And and at the end of the case, uh, Felix wrote and called me and said, you're in the wrong business, you really should be a banker. And I resisted then, that was like 1992 or 1994. I resisted changing my career. Uh, then, but in 1999, they came calling again. And uh, after I was working on a large restructuring in Korea called Daewoo, mm-hmm. uh, they had borrowed giant, a, giant company. Giant company. They again one of the one of the Korean of their version. Uh, and uh, you know, a trading company, a steel company, an electronics company, a textile company, a finance, I mean, real estate, finance, real estate. The whole nine yards. Ten percent of the Korean economy wow. in one company under one roof.
2: What could go wrong with that?
1: What can go wrong with that? And they had borrowed sixty billion dollars in all over God's green earth, and you know fell on hard times as a result of the Thai baht crisis, which became the Korean won crisis in the late nineties. And um, so they hired I, they hired Cleary, and the, I, I was in charge of that. And uh, I hired Lazard to help me with it because they had. Restructuring, and they had uh, presence all over God's green earth, where we had to restructure various debt. So I got to know the guys running that practice very well. At the end of it, they leaned over across the aisle from some god awful flight from Tokyo to New York and said, "You know, you're in the wrong business." And I said, "I've heard this before (laughs) from you guys, right?" (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this time, I succumbed to the uh, the offer.
2: So you're there from 2000 to 2008, and. We had a couple of little things uh, happen in 08. How did you go from Lazard doing corporate restructuring to working with Uncle Sam, who uh, was a little concerned about Lehman and AIG and everything else? So I answered the
1: phone is basically the, is basically <laughs> the, the answer to that. I had a, a, you know, it's funny how the world works. I had a friend, uh, a guy I had worked with uh, when he was, a young uh, policy analyst uh, in the Carter administration. When I was a, a you young know, whippersnapper a, lawyer. A, well, no, when I was a you know graduate student out of Berkeley, mm-hmm. and I was writing things on industrial policy, and he was reading them and helping promote them across the Carter administration. And uh, anyway, I picked up you know shortly after the election, like ten minutes after the election uh, of President Obama then to be President Obama. I got a call from him and he said, you might have noticed we're doing a couple of restructurings down here. (laughs) The the new administration could use someone with your background. Would you be willing to come? And, you know, i always had an interest in who would have believed that the country needed my expertise in particular, but there it was. (laughs) Quite quite fascinating.
2: So you mentioned you got a phone call. What made you decide to take what sounded like a pretty thankless role?
1: Well, that's you know that's what I do for a living. <laughs> Pretty thankless roles, but um, you know I think the I thought I might be able to make a modest contribution uh, given mm-hmm. my background, and uh, and I had been you know a student of the financial crisis as it was unfolding. We at Lazard, you know, were running the leading restructuring practice. We had a lot of these, the front end of the subprime. Crisis running in, you know coming through our doors, um, American mortgage companies, mortgage and originators and distributors coming mm-hmm. through. I mean the you know they were the first to fail, right? The front sure. end of the system was the first to fail, and that was in 07. Uh, and you know I'm a curious fellow, and I was there was a plethora of these companies coming in. It was like,
2: what's going on? The, there was a website called MortgageImplode.com. Uh-huh. And it tracked. There's something like 400 of them blew right. up, but it would track it in real time and kept a running list. It was quite astonishing.
1: And some of the biggest ones, you know, New Century, American Home Mortgage showed up at our doors as our clients. We, you know, presided over and helped them liquidate themselves, in effect. And uh, so I, you know, my antenna went up. I got smart about the subprime crisis and mm-hmm. the leveraging of the financial system and how they were leveraging themselves around these products and others. Um, so when this call came, you know, having become a student of what had gone on in the American financial industry uh, between 2000 and 2008, um, you know, I, with my curiosity alone drove me to Washington.
2: So so the news crosses, AIG gets 182 billion dollar bailout. What's your immediate response when you see these, these are hard. We're kind of used to them today, right. but at the time, these numbers were just unfathomable.
1: Yeah, I mean by the time I got there, um, AIG had already um, borrowed from the Fed in one pocket or another $132 billion. So mm-hmm. that was in over the course of eight weeks, mm-hmm. between September 18th when the first loan was, init- ink- was inked, to the time you know the transition team was in place and we were now trying to figure out what was going on. Um, they had borrowed 132 billion dollars and that's when you know the restructuring first began right the, the the in 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 most cases with the exception of Lehman Brothers what the federal government the fed the treasury and the fdic did during the um, course of 2008 was just refinance the balance sheets the short term debt coming due on the balance sheets of all of these companies
2: basically saying these companies are effectively solvent but they have a very short term liquidity issue, and if we could free that up, well, these are companies worth worth saving, and if they crash, it causes a big problem otherwise. Well,
1: an insolvency expert would say there are two definitions in insolvency. Mm-hmm. There's a balance sheet insolvency, where your liabilities exceed your fair market value of your assets, and then there's illiquidity, your inability to pay your debts when due. It was clear at the time that none of these companies could pay their debts when due. They needed in effect, what the Fed was established to do, to be a lender of last resort, an emergency provider of liquidity when the markets freeze up in their panics. And the Fed, and the FDIC, and the Treasury Department did this to a fairly well during the Bush administration under the leadership of Secretary Paulson and Ben Bernanke at the Fed. Um, so by the time we get there uh in you know late 08 we haven't yet assumed the powers but there's a transition going on a baton passing exercise mm-hmm. going on between the paulson treasury department and the geithner
2: treasury department um and those guys had worked together previously so it wasn't like they were strangers geithner was at the president of the new york fed right so everybody kind of knew each other. yeah
1: one. no no there, there was a very seamless transition and you know Sometimes you get lucky as a country, right? We have the leading economic historian of the Great Depression sitting as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He may not have had a playbook as to what to do, but he knew what the Fed did wrong in the 30s, and he was dedicated not to doing that again.
2: Hey, learning what not to do is half the battle. You put your way ahead of people. So so you mentioned the difference between a liquidity event and a solvency event, and you mentioned in passing Lehman Brothers— Let's talk about that a second. There have been some academic studies that said at the time Lehman Brothers went belly up, their value was somewhere between a negative hundred billion dollars and negative two hundred billion dollars. Of all the companies out there, they really seem to be completely insolvent. Yeah. fair statement?
1: Well, so if you took a snapshot, I would venture to say, if you took a snapshot, and mark-to-market the balance sheets of any of the major financial institutions, particularly the broker-dealers, mm-hmm. Goldman, Morgan Stanley, um, Merrill Lynch, uh, on September 1st, maybe make it September 9th, the day mm-hmm. after Fannie and Freddie are taken into conservatorship and panic runs through the entire conventional and subprime, we've already run through the subprime market, but now you take the largest you know, mortgage players, right. right? So, a topic. right, so con- exactly. And you put them in a conservatorship on the on the theory that either they're illiquid and need the government's support, or they're insolvent and need the government's balance sheet to back them. Uh, if you took a snapshot of the balance sheets of any of the major financial institutions in the United States on September 9th and said, "Mark this all to market right mm-hmm. now." where anything is trading. My, my, I dare say on a balance sheet basis, they'd all look insolvent. Mm-hmm. But And that was sort of the thing. There's, there's, there's a relationship between your ability to maintain a position and your solvency. So, you know, Keynes famously said the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. But if you can stay solvent, that is liquid mm-hmm. through a downturn, you're okay. You're okay. And so, in effect- And in effect, fact,
2: better. You come out the other side, right. actually, pretty good.
1: So, in the case of Lehman, right? So, you have Lehman Weekend. You know, this story has been told many times, but uh, the, the the Fed, uh, at the New York Fed, they're trying to figure out if they can broker a marriage between Lehman and Barclays or Lehman and Bank of America. And each of those institutions, the prospective buyers, is doing diligence as fast mm-hmm. as they can on Lehman's book to try and figure out- which part of the bank, if maybe the entire part of the bank they will take. And um, in particular, B of A has done as good a job as could be done in the circumstances in analysis of Lehman's real estate portfolio. And they conclude that the marks, that the the last marks on the portfolio vastly overstate the value.
2: Right, fabricated, completely fabricated. Well,
1: who knows whether it's fabricated. The market was going to collapse. If you could have held on to
2: it, So who knows? So let let me share my pet peeve. Yeah, which is the we'll we'll hold aside the Fasb rule change that no longer required mark to market. We'll discuss that later. Right. But the repo one hundred and five. If if you have to every quarter, a few days before you report your earnings, and you have to square up your quarterly numbers, you have to move fifty plus billion dollars of liability off your balance sheet. Right. That kind of implies that not only is your accounting somewhat opaque, but it implies that you're committing accounting fraud on your investors, and you're probably either in bad shape or deeply insolvent. And we've since found that, forget the mark-to-market, they're deeply insolvent.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that was the conclusion the Fed reached. (laughs) And they concluded that they really didn't have a statutory basis on which to be able to fund... Uh, provide emergency lending to Lehman. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think in retrospect, given the fallout that immediately occurred upon the filing of that bankruptcy, maybe we should have been more creative. (sighs) We could have foisted losses on the shareholders. We Mm -hmm. could have foisted losses. Well, we did. (laughs) Right. Well, we had a bankruptcy. Um, You know, we could have achieved the kind of, you know, anti-moral hazard problem with bailouts, um, potentially in the way we structured... Uh, a loan to the broker dealer, so as to avoid the kind of adverse mm-hmm. impacts that I mean that the filing of Lehman Brothers created a panic. For, well, uh, okay, I'm not going to disagree with that. Right, and so you know the the whole the whole script of the rescue from. You know the beginning of with Bear Stearns to the opening of the FX lines to make sure that the European banks didn't default against their on their own debt and therefore default on their American counterparties, mm-hmm. which would have created a liquidity crisis here. To the you know putting of Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship, the saving of AIG, the series of emergency, the alphabet soup of emergency lending programs the Fed instituted. Um, you know, the prime dealer credit facility, the TALF, the TAF, the, you know, commercial paper facility. I mean, you know, there was a, every market that had frozen up, they intervened in and tried to restart, uh, in order to provide liquidity to the system. And so the question is, you know, in the midst of that just tsunami of credit support and liquidity, you decide to take one
2: company down. (laughs) My, my pet thesis is Dick Fold said no to Warren Buffett's offer to, to inject capital over the summer, and I, I I wish I was a fly on the wall in that room because I have to imagine between Paulson and Bernanke and Geithner, someone said, this this idiot said no to Warren Buffett? How, how can we possibly save him? They had an opportunity. He was a pig. He's think, always been a pig and now he should be in an orange jumpsuit. But let's We're not automatons. Okay. And
1: personalities and personal histories matter. And I so I don't think there's uh I don't think you're crazy in
2: that thought. <laughs> so, let's talk a little about what's going on currently in your career. Um after you leave Treasury, you go to work as a banker and an, and an investor and you Pretty much decide to hang out your own shingle, Milstein and Company. Um, tell us about the launch of that firm and, and what the thinking was as opposed to being attached to another giant financial entity.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing working in the government cures you of is the desire to have a boss. Right. <laughs> so um, I decided I would set up my own shop. I really had no you know grand plans, but um, uh, we went from you know one answering one another call to another call to another call, and before I knew it. You know, I had offices in New York and Washington, and we were working on large res- corporate restructurings and sovereign restructurings again, and uh, and also, you know, reinvesting the profits of the business, the partners, the guys who joined me, and guys and gals who joined me. You know, we all agreed that um, uh, the advisory business is a, a business that goes up and down; and mm-hmm. revenue is volatile. Whereas, if we could actually make some solid investments, we might be able to provide ourselves with. Uh, a little more secure income in a manner to generate wealth, particularly for the young kids who were working Mm -hmm. for me. So anyway, seven years into this, we ended up with 35 people doing corporate and sovereign restructuring and, you know, 15 people doing investing. Mm -hmm. And we had raised some third-party funds. uh, And, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 63 years old and Uh, The people who had joined me were all in their 30s and 40s. And, you know, I turned to them and said, "Uh, we have a strategic problem, Uh, two strategic problems. One, we're a small boutique entering what I think will be a tsunami of restructuring to come. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: And we really could use the leverage of a larger firm with, you know, arms and legs uh, in various industries with real industry expertise Uh, as opposed to our sort of product specialty uh, called restructuring, uh, on the one hand. And the other strategic challenge was, you know, we've built a franchise and and, uh, I'm not getting any younger. So eventually we concluded that merging with a larger financial services firm made sense. Uh, Alan Schwartz and I had been talking for uh, three or four years.
2: Former Bear Stearns CEO, is that right? Former
1: Bear Stearns CEO and really one of the most uh, widely respected bankers, investment bankers uh, in the United States. I mean, he's, you know, Disney's banker, Verizon's banker. He's a, he's a very well-respected boardroom banker uh, and tactician and strategist. So, and he and I had become friends after the crisis. Um, and so it became, it was a natural fit. They have, you know, 400 bankers who do, you know, t- tech media, telecom, power and energy, real estate, and the whole uh, landscape, waterfront. Uh, as well as sales and trading, so they're kind of you know where, what Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were back in the early '90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've built an independent investment bank, but before they went public, before the they went public and expanded their balance sheets enormously, Tremendously. Right.
2: right? So you mentioned something in passing. I can't let go by. You think we're at the leading edge of a wave of future restructurings? Is that global? Is that industry specific? Where where do you see that happening?
1: Well, let's do some stats. Um, you know, corporate debt to GDP is the highest it's been in American history ever. Mm-hmm. So we have a very levered corporate sector. And part of that is, you know, the financial reengineering of their own balance sheets, stock buybacks, funded with debt. Um, part of that is, you know, the buyout waves and leveraging generally that's associated with the buyouts. Um, and part of that is,, um, you know, just the general tend to the credit has been so cheap that uh, right. that corporations have reengineered their own. so so that was the qu-
2: That was the question I immediately popped into my mind after you said that was, well, is there a reason for them not to be leveraged up when money is almost not quite free? And as long as they're, I, I hope everyone learned the lesson about um, fixed versus <laughs> variable, uh, lending in the financial crisis, as long as those rates are locked in, it seems like their debt servicing is fairly affordable.
1: It is uh, until it profits, is. It, but go there away. are two sides of that, right? And, you know, if your cash flows decline because of a recession, suddenly your leverage goes from manageable to unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a rising interest rate environment, forget about uh, floating rate. You know, a lot of bank debt is floating rate, but that's at a leverage level that is generally two to three times, so it's not going to sink a company even in a declining cash flow environment. But mm-hmm. the real risk is refinancing risk, which is exactly what we saw during the financial crisis with the financial industri- institutions. In other words, they have
2: to roll that debt over, and That's now right. it's at a much higher rate, or maybe they can't roll it over at all. Exactly. So with a very highly level-
1: levered corporate sector, and if you look at credit quality, Barry, I mean, I'm sure you know these stats. You know, 50% of the so-called investment-grade debt
2: yeah, the uh, is the is the
1: bottom is the lowest investment yeah. grade ranking and the non investment grade debt now constitutes more than half of all debt on the corporate sector in the United States so you have a highly levered sector with very low credit quality um you know we could f- and you have a fed raising interest rates the federal government borrowing um like a drunken sailor uh on leave and i I always
2: object to that uh ...metaphor because drunken sailors spend their own money. Money, exactly.
1: Okay, you're right. <laughs> the federal government borrowing like there was no tomorrow. How about that? <laughs> Fa-
2: fair enough. Right. You've had a ringside seat to some of the most fascinating restructurings of recent memory. You either worked on these or near these or people in the firm um, did some work on them. U.S. Airways, Charter Communications, the auto workers, the car makers... Uh, Bailout and Reboot, even countries like Cyprus and Greece, and in the United States, Puerto Rico. So I have to ask you, what do all these things have in common, and, and what are the important differences? When, when you look at these big financial snafus, what, what should we make of these?
1: Yeah. So uh, Tolstoy and Anna Karenina says that all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm -hmm. And each restructuring, you know, is unique in its own way. There's sometimes it's management that just, you know, went off on a frolic and detour, spent too much money, levered up and uh, on a mistaken strategy. Other times uh, it's, you know, a change in the business cycle uh, and a highly levered balance sheet that takes a perfectly good company that uh, in ordinary times it generate even in bad times it's generating cash flow, but it's just got the wrong balance sheet for the kinds of cash flows capable of generating through a cycle. And so you're doing a balance sheet restructuring of a good business. Um, you know, and other times it's a business that you know, whose time has come, whose mission has long since passed. Hypothetically a company like Sears. Exactly. Um and so, or yeah, not so hypothetically, by yeah. The time so the real world, apparently, yeah. Uh, you know, in the case of countries, it's some combination of investor enthusiasm, misplaced enthusiasm for mm-hmm. sovereign debt, and a failure to really look at the underlying dynamics of a country's uh, economy.
2: Um, I was just in Iceland, and the story there is just—it's crazy, right? Right. it's it, now it, it, it's it's crazy again right. It, right it's an island of you know the size of people. boston right? right and and they were levered like eighty eight to 1 against gdp is yeah. just nuts well they, they, they were a,
1: a product of uh you know open capital uh no capital controls and capital you know swishing swashing through the system um so how is that different from Greece or Puerto Rico? Well, so Puerto, I mean Puerto Rico, the capital markets were open, uh, mm-hmm. and as long as they were open, you could do deficit financing. Right. Uh,
2: Even though states and cities are not supposed to do deficit financing. That's right.
1: But there, but you know, municipal bankers, of which I do not count myself as one, have found lots of ways to uh, get finance, around those rules. Well, to find ways to finance deficits that are not completely transparent. Uh, and so uh, Puerto Rico went into a recession in 2006 as a result of a change in federal law that had formally subsidized uh, pharmaceutical production on the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had had a 20-year tax break that encouraged pharmaceuticals to do their final packaging on the island and created 350,000 jobs and wow. lots of tax revenues. And that expired in 2006. Puerto Rico went into a recession that they still have not come out of. You know, 12, a decade plus later. Yeah, wow. a decade plus later, and they financed the decline in tax revenues with debt, mm-hmm. uh, lots of it. So they, by the time they got to us, <laughs> Millstein and company then, in uh, 2014, they had $75 billion of debt for an island of 3.5 million people. They had uh, pension systems that were underfunded at the tune of $30 or $40 billion or 40000000000 dollars uh, and uh, and a real inability to pay their debts when due, and particularly as the capital markets shut to them. And mm-hmm. right, as long as you can roll that debt over... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, but if you can't roll it over because, you know, suddenly you're borrowing what you would... The debt you would incur it at 2% in the muni market, you're now having to pay 8% tax-free. Um, you know, it just makes it unsustainable.
2: Right. I, I was on, in Puerto Rico, I want to say 14 or 15 and already there was a brain drain going on. There were, people forget, it's not a different country. Right. You could hop on an American Airlines flight and go anywhere in the United States, no passport required.
1: Right, and lots of people did um, and have. Uh, and so in any event, so you know, countries are much more complex. Uh, and you know, we're seeing, and frankly, we're doing a lot of work now uh, in the United States because you have a series of states that um, don't look all that much better than Puerto Rico did in 2014. Illinois has to be a giant Illinois, mess.
2: Connecticut. I mean, all of the— How did Connecticut go south so fast? I mean, at one point, they it, were one of the wealthier states in the country. Well,
1: they're still one of the wealthier states in the country. The problem is is that they've their economy is growing slower than the rest of the surrounding uh, states, and they've levered themselves up and deferred pension contributions for 20 years. And as a what result, could go wrong with that? Right. I mean, you know, this is the the, the responsible handling of the commitments you make as a state is mm-hmm. critical to the, finan- the st- stability of the state.
2: So if you're a fill-in-the-blank teacher, police officer, fireman in any of these states, are you going to get 100 cents on the dollar of your expected pension retirement, or— Everything's on the table in order to make these states solvent again.
1: You know, it seems unlikely. Really? Uh, yeah. There's a three and a half trillion dollar deficiency in the funding of state employee pensions nationwide. Three and a half trillion dollars. Amazing. Uh, and the you know the 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 problem for these public employees is that um, you know the at least today, even in Trump's America. Uh, there are no walls built between uh, the boundaries of different states. So if a state starts overtaxing compared to other states, it's mm-hmm. it's empl- it's citizens and underserving them in terms of the provision of current services in the form of good infrastructure, good schools. Mm-hmm. Um, People, people leave. People leave. And yeah. when they leave— Look at Kansas. Look right. what a
2: mess they made over there.
1: They take, And when they leave, they take their tax revenues and property taxes and income taxes with them, and it becomes an adverse feedback loop. A mm-hmm. you know, fewer and fewer number of citizens are supporting a greater and growing liability for legacy costs. Hmm. And so, you know, this is— there's going to have to be uh, a reckoning here. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and... That's the name of your next book, The, <laughs> the Reckoning. The Reckoning, yes. I, I like that. So let's talk about something that's a little more cheerful. I know you are a fan of watching the financial sector and looking at some of the dominant players, which have become very concentrated post-crisis. Uh, and I know you're a fan of fintech. Uh, what When you look at this... Are, are these big companies going to stay entrenched and keep putting up walls to prevent competition? Or can the new financial technologies, um, can these new upstart companies break that hegemony from, uh, from the big finance companies?
1: Uh, the answer to that is um, it's going to depend on government policy. Really, uh, because what is going on uh, with the financials and fintech is similar to what's going on with Facebook and Snapchat and Google and every other you know high flying startup technology company. Now,
2: now, why aren't those tech companies just thought of as aggressively competing in the marketplace? And you have Apple and you have Amazon, you have Google, you have Facebook, you have all these companies. Yep. Granted, there are four giant winners, but still, any you know you could look at how many. Search engines were there before Google became dominant. Right.
1: So, so, but these
2: companies
1: um, are rolling up, you know, potential threats to their competition, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a great exit for a venture capitalist and for an entrepreneur who has a great idea um, to sell yourself to Google, to Amazon, to Apple, uh, to Facebook, and the f- big banks are doing the same thing in fintech. There mm-hmm. have been you know a multitude of startups in and around the financial services space and the big banks recognize the potential threat so they're doing a lot of in-house R&D but they're also acquiring uh, a lot of the new startups and so government policy will really make a difference and here's the thought experiment that I I urge you and your listeners to think about so today we have a uh bank-centric deposit system right if you want to store your money have um, immediate access to your cash liquidity right If a trade-off from liquidity versus return you're going to have a deposit account at a mm-hmm. bank uh to meet your ordinary and immediate spending needs um it's safe because it's guaranteed by the federal government um the banks in turn take your deposits and deposit them their excess reserves at the fed and the fed is now paying them 75 basis points uh, for the privilege of having those excess reserves on deposit at the Fed. The Fed is basically a clearinghouse among all the banks. Well, what if you, Barry Ritholtz, could have a deposit account at the Fed? You could get 75 basis points, and you could direct the Fed to transfer your money to your mutual fund, to your utility bill, to your uh, wherever you wanted it to go. In other words, what if you had a bank account at the Fed?
2: Um, if I could become a systemically important financial inf- institution i know they'll they'll be able to bail me out when yeah, but,
1: well maybe the, that wouldn't come with your deposit oh, account oh okay but but the the facility with which monetary policy could then be conducted is um, extraordinary right because mm-hmm. if they want to encourage uh, savings to be if they want to encourage savings and reduce the money supply they would increase the interest rate on your deposit account if they want to encourage investment and spending they would reduce the interest rate, maybe even have a negative interest rate to force your money out. But the point is is that it would disintermediate the banks. Uh, and banks, arguably, would have to go find other sources of funding other than subsidized deposits uh, from the federal government.
2: And, and you're implying fintech is going to play this role, well, or potentially we, can play this role. Yeah,
1: I don't know where you are on the cryptocurrency debate. Um,
2: I'm, I'm a full-blown meh.
1: Yeah, (laughs) as opposed to Nuriel, who is uh, you know a full time. He's a little late to that, but still okay. But in effect, the Fed could issue a digital currency. You have a trusted agent issuing Mm -hmm. a digital currency that allows uh, individuals to, in effect, transact. Uh, in electronic form, as opposed to just allowing
2: via the blockchain, is that what
1: you're well, suggesting? Well, they might implement it via blockchain, That's but right now the implementation itself is quite expensive in blockchain. The mm-hmm. processing costs, you know, far exceed what the the antiquated networks of Visa and Mastercard uh, their processing costs. But it may get there. Now, people, may get there. something
2: like twenty percent of all cryptocurrencies have been lost, and if I lose my credit card, my liability is capped at fifty dollars. Right. So until we find a way around that, yeah,
1: no, I think there are lots of problems um, with this. But the biggest problem, the biggest problem with any currency, a fiat currency, is whether it's legal tender. And so, you know, until until it's accepted as a form of payment by the federal government, it's really just a
2: speculative tool. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a million more questions for you. Sure. We've been speaking with Jim Milstein. He is the co-chairman of Guggenheim Securities. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things restructuring. You can find that at iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at Podcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thank you so much for doing this. I am not only fascinated by the entire financial crisis over that—that was my doctoral thesis, right? Um, Sort of, Um, but there's so much minutia in that space that I think so many people don't know. And you were literally table right there. You were—you had a seat at the table. Right in the middle of that, in the belly of the beast, and and never any interest in writing a a book. Going, I mean, yeah, for I, posterity's sake, there should be a full data dump on everything you uh, we we have. What I learned when we we I Bernanke's, went to Washington, right, right, <laughs> but not from the perspective of the central banker. I, I I'm glad Bernanke had his expertise, although you know, whenever they screw up in surgery. And they have to send someone in to fix it, it's never the original surgeon because right. he has a vested interest in protecting his own reputation. Right. My, my thought process was hey, Larry Summers was there, uh, you know, was the guy who uh, repealed Glass Steagall and passed the Commodities Future Modernization Act. Tim Geithner was the um, New York uh, Federal Reserve president, and Bernanke was kind of there cheering Greenspan along to doing all of his, um, talk about a reputation collapse, but all of his ideology, Bernanke was right there with him. So I wonder if this really was the optimal, maybe that's the right word, the optimal crew to go on and rescue. That said, I completely appreciate Bernanke having had his expertise, and perhaps of all of them, he was the right guy in the right time.
1: Yeah. Well, Tim Tim had his own qualifications, right? He had lived through, I mean, he, people thought he had worked at Goldman Sachs or something. He would have been a, no. a long-term Treasury Department right. official he was pro- he was and New York so- Fed. And he right. had gone through the Thai bot crisis. He had seen the crisis in Latin America in the 80s when he was a young man. So, you know, I think he, ha- he came to the crisis, this crisis, with some background and experience and understood the tools and the importance mm-hmm. uh, of doing what we did. So, all that said, um, you know, when I got out of the government, um, having been a corporate restructuring guy rather than a financial regulation, uh, financial industry banker, you know, I determined that I needed to go teach a course on financial regulation and the crisis <laughs> in order to figure out what I had just gone through. Right. And, you, you know... You
2: write in order to figure out what you think. In your case, you teach in order to figure out. You exactly. Talk. So I And taught, you're still um, doing that at Georgetown.
1: Yeah, I, I just finished uh, the... Third semester of teaching on that with uh, Tim Massett, who ran the CFTC mm-hmm. um, under the last in the last Obama administration, and he had also been at Treasury with us in the TARP program, and so he and I taught that together, which was you know was it was fun to do it with him, uh, my third time around, but um, I think it's still too fresh. You know, from the point of view of writing a book, yeah, but I think it's still too fresh. I mean, you have a lot of kind of, you know, from the front line accounts that have already been written. And those Um, were written
2: pretty much in real time. They came
1: out within a year or two. Exactly. And then, you know, Secretary Geithner wrote his book and Bernanke wrote his book and Paulson's written his book. And there have been a couple of, you know, lieutenants and sergeants who've written their books. But...
2: I think plus so. random
1: idiots who had nothing whatsoever to do with it came out well, and spilled their point. I'm, I'm actually in the middle of reading um, uh, Toews' book, which I think is uh, Adam Tews. It? It's called Crashed. It just oh, came sure. out. and yeah. I, I It's very good because it takes a it it situates the crisis in the kind of macroeconomic environment of the. Uh, early 2000s, of the early aughts. And, you know, if you've just cast, you know, the thing about the crisis is it kind of overwhelmed everything else mm-hmm. that might we might have been thinking and using as a frame of reference. It overwhelmed, you know, the introduction of the iPhone, which has had at least as important an impact sure. on our culture and society as the crash itself had in 2008. You know, the iPhone introduced in 2007. But, you know, what Tu's highlights is, and it's relevant today to the existing problems with China, is, you know, we had a savings glut that we were all worried about, that we thought that, you know, the-, the I've always hated that argument. I know, but So they, terrible. But, but it's true. Having run deficits and trade deficits, uh, run deficits since the Clinton administration and run trade deficits since the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, we've been exporting dollars around the globe for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time that we we're deregulating the financial system, And the largest holder of dollars, where you know there were two pools, huge pools of dollars offshore,
2: China, one in Europe, yeah, China,
1: Japan, and in Europe, right? And um, that savings glut was the you know was the concern of the Fed and of all the macro. Bernanke wrote a
2: white paper on that. Exactly. I I thought it was just a horrific, just completely clueless argument from people who were, it's a classic example. I I have a lot of respect for academic research and writing, um, but often when you get into the real-world situations, sometimes the academics take an idea and they go off. So what's, what's more significant, the savings glut or rates at zero and bond managers scrambling for any sort of yield and telling their existing... Um, traders and managers, go find me some yield, and if you can, I'll fire you and find someone who can. What's what's this day and some prime securitized stuff that is safe as Treasuries and paying a few hundred basis points higher? Why don't we have more of that? Yeah, that's a real world thing that the academics have a tendency to miss For until sure. until after the fact.
1: Yeah, but you know, but they're I'm in defense of some academics. My, <laughs> my friends Gary Gordon and Andrew Metrick at Yale have done. You know, great writing about the confluence of events that led to uh, the great innovation of a subprime mortgage mm-hmm. of a you know two-year teaser interest 228, rate, yeah, yeah. the two twenty-eight or the three twenty-seven. I
2: could have saved them a lot of paper and said, "You have no w- real wage gains for thirty years, and people are looking to do to maintain their living standard, even though their incomes are much lower." So. That means debt and restructuring. So here's
1: another book, an obscure book that you might want to read uh, called Capitalizing on Crisis. It's written uh, by uh, uh, Gripner, I think is her name, Greta Gripner, mm-hmm. And it's all about the political um, origins of, fina- of uh, modern American finance. And the story she tells, which I think is uh, we, you and I lived through. I think you're a little younger than me, but not much. You got about
2: five, six years. Yeah,
1: um, was that you know the stagflation of the 1970s created a political crisis um, because With lasting impact that people were unaware of. And and the one of the biggest policy initiatives of the Reagan administration in every administration since uh, has been to uh, expand the provision of credit where mm-hmm. income where incomes were lagging and failing and falling behind, um, we substituted credit.
2: N- no doubt about that. Widespread
1: credit availability, and you know, levered up both the government to do so, levered up uh, households in order to uh, turn their homes into cash machines mm-hmm. to supplement, uh, so they could supplement their incomes with the increase in the value of their homes. Uh, to finance the purchase of everything under the sun from du- every consumer durable available through credit cards and installment credit.
2: A lot of that goes back to post-World War II, it, 50s and 60s. It does. But really the 70s is what flipped that when suddenly giant inflation, no, that was the beginning of, of no real wage gains. And then the whole Reagan era forward, it was clear that capital... Uh, had a better seat at the government policy table than labor did. And 30, 40 years later, we've seen, uh, what are we now, uh, the the percentage of um, corporate profits as a percentage of GDP is at its all-time high, which means that labor is getting less. I pretend to be a free market capitalist, but I can't help but look at those numbers and say, hey, this is problematic. We keep this up and... We're going to elect some crazy populist as president yeah and, and so, then what
1: okay and then what and so here's another book for your listeners is called can capitalism be saved by my good friend steve perlstein who's the chief economics writer of the washington post and he's mm-hmm. written a really thoughtful book about is greed good no uh is fairness going to make us poor no um, uh, You know, it's a very serious treatment of the questions that we're now confronting as a nation with the highest inequality in American
2: history. So does he conclude capitalism can be saved? Or? Yeah, uh, capitalism can be saved. But, but we,
1: what we—I uh, mean, this has been true, you know, really since the progressive era. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this is a joint venture between government and capital
2: to come up with a society that is productive and just. So I have a—this uh, will be my last pet thesis— europe began as a feudal system where the king owned everything and you were allowed to work on the land and if he threw you uh, a little bit of wheat and some food to survive that was up from zero and the reason europeans are so much more comfortable with some aspect of socialism with their capitalism is they started out with zero and as they went higher and higher to them oh wait we we To own land, we get to have, well, since you used to, since the government used to provide everything, food, protection, what have you, having the government pay for healthcare and retirement and education seems to make sense. The U.S., on the other hand, started with the exact opposite. Government did nothing, and you were responsible for 100% of your own safety. So one starting from zero and going up, and the other starting from 100 and going down. And there's resistance uh, in both directions, but- well, the,
1: the myths by which we live, right? I mean, you and I, our, our immediate parents, their grandparents, mm-hmm. you have to go probably back four generations before you have someone homesteading right. and you know, protecting themselves and fending for themselves. And yet this myth of the American frontier is very powerful in our political ideology, and therefore in our social policy. But the reality, you know, four generations later from the last homestead or the last frontiers mm-hmm. of woman and man um, is, a, is a multi-ethnic, multiracial society. You know, we have one of the greatest challenges, I think, uh, in human history, which is can we create a tribe, one tribe out of many, you know, e pluribus unum. And uh, it really is, it befalls to us as Americans to figure out whether we can
2: make this a democracy out of, you know, many tribes. I, I think we need to do a better job of educating our students, not just teaching them to attest as as middle school and, and high school students, but having them have a better understanding of all these forces and and teaching them how to think as opposed to teaching them to memorize. Because we've created Several generations of people. So, you and I both have an advantage of a legal uh, education, mm-hmm. which to me, the most important thing law school teaches you is not case law, is not specific, right. but the entire process of here is the basic syllogism. Here, so you don't know what the law is going to look like in the future. You don't know what sort of random fact pattern you're going to encounter. How can you, regardless of circumstances, Apply some specific fact pattern to whatever the case law happens to be at that moment. You have to learn how to think. It's very flexible, and it's it's very open-minded. And I don't know of a lot of other industries that teach that. And I agree with you. I think an, the legal education. I mean, it's a, I think it goes on maybe a year too long. Yes, for sure.
1: But, but I think the training is unsurpassed.
2: It, it's it's not what to think, but how to think. How to think. And I make fun of my. MBA buddies who are taught what to think right. or they're taught the canon of financial literacy but not necessarily, and now here's how to analyze when either this stops working or this goes wrong or, and it's I I don't want to make this a JD versus an MBA, but they're two very different philosophical approaches and in the modern world where everything is topsy-turvy, I have come to the conclusion that learning how to think is a tremendous uh, skill to have.
1: Yeah, but I also think I, I, I agree with that and, and surely our schools can do a better job um, of developing that you know, emotional intelligence and analytic ability, to, mm-hmm. the ability to handle new facts uh, and put them in find new patterns. Um, but I also think that uh, the, the social media has iso- in a funny way has isolated people from one another. It's isolating communities. Uh, as much as it 's creating uh cross community con- the possibility of cross community communication, and so i 've come around to the view that we really need national service that, mm-hmm. that in order to works in Israel yeah, it works in israel for and it, and it made sense in and israel Switzerland bringing Jews for that matter. from all over the world, different ethnic and um, national backgrounds into one little desert country. Uh, and it was a way of forging a national identity and i think we have that problem in the united states now we really we've we're separating into na- into separate tribes mm-hmm. and not just democrat and republican but you know the, the identity politics urban versus farmer right, exactly. and men versus all women of the identities there's a million splits and i think you know i think two or three years of mandatory national service is the
2: best hope for the future of this country. I have a buddy who's an American citizen at UBS, but he grew up in Switzerland and I don't know if they're still doing this, but not all that long ago every every citizen and every resident was obligated to serve at least one year in the military or some other Right. It doesn't have to be surface. the military right. here.
1: I mean, I think I think there's lots of need in America uh, that could be met by a national corps. And I think having, you know, the experience before you go to college of actually having to live and work with uh, people different to yourself, but all of whom are American, would be a a great national unifier.
2: That's quite fascinating. In 2011, I found this interesting quote of yours. The need for a chief restructuring officer is really part of the past. So how did you realize, hey, my work here is done. It's time to move (laughs) on. And, and um, the Lone Rangers goes off into the sunset. How, how, what made you come to that conclusion?
1: Well, I think the, the macroeconomic condition surely had um, eased. So uh, the Fed had embarked on its quantitative easing. The markets had rallied. Uh, you know, the depth of the market, uh, the equity market, and the credit market were in May of 2009. By the time you got to the end of 2010, uh, you had seen a rally back. The rallies had both started in both markets. And uh, most importantly, by the end of 2009, the interbank lending market opened up again. The banks were actually comfortable enough with each other to start lending to each other overnight. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a pretty real sign of uh, that, that the crisis had passed. Um, but, you know, I was part of the cleanup crew. And we, part of my job was to... Um, get the taxpayers' money back. Um, you know, by the time, by the time uh, 2010 had ended, we had struck uh, a deal with AIG's board for a complete recapitalization of the company. Uh, we had converted some debt into TARP equity, some Fed debt into TARP equity along the way in 2009. Um, And then we did a series of asset sales and restructurings from AIG. We reduced its balance sheet from a trillion dollars of assets to half a trillion of assets, selling off its Asian life insurance operations, its Middle East life insurance operations, its Middle European life insurance operations, and a hundred other businesses along the way that they were involved in. So,
2: So what does AIG look like today?
1: So AIG today is still the lar- one of the largest property casualty um, insurers in the world. Um, it's a, one of the largest domestic life insurance companies. Uh, and uh, not a lot else. We sold off the aircraft leasing business, the consumer finance business, as I said, all these other
2: worldwide life insurance operations. So they had a ton of assets that were very savable.
1: They were very savable. And as a result of the asset sales, we managed to use the asset sales to pay off the Fed's loans, mm-hmm. leaving the federal government with you know $50 billion of preferred stock. Mm-hmm. We converted the preferred stock um, into 92% of the common stock. And so we now had a liquid market, uh, and eventually we had a liquid market into which to offload the t- Treasury's shares of common stock.
2: So, so that brings up another peeve of mine. I think that process where the rescuer gets most of the equity is a reasonable one. Hey, we're taking all the risk. We're putting up all this money. Maybe this works out. Maybe it doesn't. Um, and so there's a, a, a big upside at the end of it. Not that the government is doing this for the trade. Right. They want to prevent the next Great Depression, but it seems fair. We didn't seem to do that with anybody else. We rescued Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, City for, I don't know, the 14th time City has been bailed out. I think it's three or four over the past century. They, they have a long history of that. Go down the list of other companies that, were, that needed bailing out um, and were rescued and were illiquid, but their balance sheet was transparent. You know, the the one lesson everybody forgets from Lehman Brothers is if you're going to have an opaque balance sheet that's, forget the insolvency, just mm-hmm. the inability for anyone to figure out what the hell is going on there, if you need a rescue, you're in trouble. and right. And that's a big part of that. So why didn't we take a similar approach to AIG where... Effectively, Uncle Sam was the debtor-in-possession financer, mm-hmm. and when that worked out, they captured whatever upside there was to be captured.
1: Yeah, so I think—look, I think the the structure of the TARP program, um, which was where we infuse, ultimately determined to infuse uh, preferred stock equity into the balance sheets of all the major financial institutions, um, I think there could be some serious criticism of the way it was done, for, particularly by— I think it may have created more of a political backlash for sure. against the program than the it needed to. The Tea Party and everything else. Well, I mean, I, the, the origins of the two Party are something we could debate for a while, but no doubt the crisis had something to do with it. But I think the one I mean, the, the one criticism I would have of the initial TARP program was that the, um, as long as the preferred stock was outstanding, um, the company should not have been permitted to pay the kinds of bonuses that they right. paid. Right. I mean, as long as you're beholden to the federal government for equity right. on your no balance, shouldn't, now, you wasn't shouldn't there, be paying bonuses. Didn't the
2: Fed have to pr- sign off on bonuses? As
1: Eventually, as well? they, they didn't sign off on the
2: 2009 bonuses, mm-hmm.
1: 2008 bonuses. And I think that was the one, those were the bonuses that provoked the enormous political. Because sure. I mean, most we ordinary Americans-
2: back bonuses, not paying them.
1: Yeah. And I think most Americans were kind of, you know, right in the view of like, wait a second, you're paying yourself billions of dollars of bonuses with taxpayer money?
2: Right. I mean, really? For, for bankrupting the company. Nice, right. nice work. Here's a bonus. Now,
1: the counter, you know, what Secretary Paulson would say, um, who designed this, these preferred, is it was important that everyone participate. Every, all the major institutions participate because we couldn't permit the negative inference that if Jamie Dimon held out, that he was the only solvent right. bank in America. Right. Uh, and so they had to make the terms of the preferred as relatively benign and painless as possible in order to induce widespread participation by all of the institutions. So there could be no picking and choosing of winners and losers. And- so,
2: so here's where I make fun of academics again. Uh, and you don't want to be too heavy-handed, but you could have had a less egregious setup. And if Jamie Dimon doesn't want to participate, well, then Bernanke has to say to him, full New Jersey bent nose accents. Hey, <laughs> ni- nice bank you got there. Shame if anything were to happen to it. Right. How much more do you have to say to say, listen, this is a disaster. We're about to have the Great Depression. Either you participate in this, or I have a feeling that the next time you come to the normal transaction process at the Fed, which is what, every single day? Yeah. Good luck with that.
1: Yeah, so I I hear you on that. I mean, I I actually got into a fight with Elizabeth Warren during a public hearing when I was testifying uh, about what we were doing with AIG and Ally Financial. And she she was beating me up that uh, we should have um, tried to extract a discount from AIG's counterparties on their um, uh, CDS on CDOs. Which your audience probably understands what I just meant in those acronyms. Uh, and
2: um, sort of counterproductive if you want to reliquify the system and encourage some some c- counterparty. Um, but you faith. had the power,
1: she said, you had the power to get Goldman Sachs to give up a discount rather than to pay them off in full. Wasn't this a backdoor bailout of Goldman Sachs? And I was like, no, okay, they were. Secretary, yeah, but she wasn't Secretary then. I was, you know, um, Professor Warren. If So you tell me how I'm supposed to, as a government in the United States, how I'm supposed to play that hand. I'm supposed to benefit AIG's shareholders by taking it out of Goldman Sachs when, in fact, we're standing behind both of these companies. The whole point was to avoid defaults across the system. And to avoid AIG defaulting on any of its obligations, because if it defaulted on any of its obligations, its credit rating would have been impaired, and we would have been started had to write even bigger checks um, what than was we the were
2: response
1: writing. to that a political response right
2: <laughs> but but meanwhile the the I, I you know there's there was no good solution there was just what was the least bad solution and yes ultimately even though we've recovered there's been a cost to this recovery oh, for sure between income inequality and the rise of populism and you know it, it's um it's one of those things that it could have been a whole lot worse but part of me feels like it it could have been it could have been a lot better
1: yeah I I think the big mistake politically was the stimulus right if you look at the Chinese too small too small the yeah. Chinese, You know, and if you look at what the federal government's doing now, right, these Republicans who were um, totally opposed to the Obama stimulus Mm -hmm. have just enacted, you know, one of the largest tax, a trillion dollars.
2: At at way Mm. higher in the economic cycle as opposed to right in the—and by the way, for those of you who don't uh, like that comment about a Republican-controlled Congress affecting a giant stimulus, be sure and send your emails to— Jim uh, <laughs> Milstein at yahoo.com. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, but it's true, you know, Keynes had this right. In the middle of a financial crisis, you cut taxes, you deficit spends, and when you have a robust economy, that's when you can stop your deficit spending and and raise taxes and balance the budget. We've done it totally ass backwards, Right,
1: and, and so, you know, in the 2009, we got uh Democratic-controlled Congress, to do a stimulus bend. but Too Obama small. but Obama went back to the well in 2010 after the Tea Party took the Republican Too Congress In 11 just couldn't get it done went mm-hmm. back with a infrastructure program could never
2: get anything through right. the Republican well, Congress Well McConnell uh, specifically said my role is to make sure he gets nothing else done going. Right.
1: Forward. So for you know, so
2: we you reap what you sow. I Here guess we are. I guess we do. So I have a million other questions, but I want to get to our favorite questions before uh, and and uh so let's jump let's jump right into this. Um, what's the most important thing that people don't know about Jim Milstein? God.
1: Um, I'm a horrible golfer. Really? Yeah.
2: Me too, but I don't play golf. So. Okay, well there you go. What's your excuse?
1: I don't know. I'm I'm a glutton for punishment. Really? Yeah. But you play regularly?
2: No, I try. I <laughs> I don't can't play
1: regularly, but I try.
2: <laughs> That's very funny. Tell us about your early mentors.
1: Um, I had a professor at Princeton, a guy named Sheldon Wolin, who recently passed, who is a political theorist mm-hmm. um, and a historian of political theory, and um, you know, and that's what I did my first uh, years as an academic. Uh, so he had a very important in- influence on my intellectual development. Um, as a career, I had a I had a partner at Clery Gottlieb named Alan Applebaum who really taught me how to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he taught me the the whole how to deal with clients, how to analyze a situation, how to um, take multi parties with conflicting interests and uh and produce a common result that was acceptable to and, them.
2: And you know, we haven't even discussed your dad who is a renowned attorney. How how did he impact your career decision? Did well, you know you were always going to be a lawyer? No,
1: it was like a residency requirement in my in my family.
2: I kind of had yeah. the same thing.
1: He um you know, my father loves. He's still alive and still, you know, practicing here and there. Your dad's uh, 90 though, isn't 92, he? 92 this year. Still and practicing. Still practicing. Still God giving advice. Oh my still God. giving advice to people. He's wow. consulted. And the thing is he loved. When I was growing up, he just loved what he did. Mm-hmm. Right? So I mean, it was hard, you know, not to look at him and be with him and and not see the law as something that was incredibly engaging. Mm-hmm. Um and because it and for him it was and as has been for me, a mix of Um, you know, uh, a crossing between private sector and public sector. Right. I mean, the law, the rule of law is what governs our private relations, but someone has to create that. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody has to create that law. Right. And and that's a public policy exercise.
2: So what, maybe this is a good point to ask this question, what attorneys uh, and other professionals have influenced the way you approach both Legal ba- banking and public service.
1: Um, you know, there's been lots of influences on that, but I mean, I think the I think the important point here is that um, the uh, I have found that um, there's really no upside to dishonesty, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know, people who can't be trusted. Uh, are people who are not going to get stuff done except in dark rooms and back alleys. Uh, and so if you want to work in the social, political, legal, business world, uh, you know your reputation is the most important thing you have. And, and uh, observance of ethics and honesty, I know this is a counterfactual in this administration, <laughs> but the observance <laughs> of ethics and honesty is uh, extremely important to your long-term success.
2: I'm looking for a response to that, and the only thing I could come up with is it's funny how each subsequent administration's popularity gets revisited in the future. Not only has George Bush's reputation gone up during this administration, but the Obama administration's ratings have all gone up, especially because, you know, drama-free, no scandals. The, the key word that keeps coming up is integrity and hopefully that will matter again at one point in our future
1: yes i'm i'm sure it will
2: um you mentioned a couple of books tell us what your favorite books are what do you read for fun fiction nonfiction.
1: i'm a nonfiction reader and you know again after after having gone through a major historical event mm-hmm. and had a ringside seat i'm i've been reading lots around it um but I think the most interesting nonfiction book I've read non r- unrelated to the financial crisis is a book called Sapiens.
2: I knew you were going to uh, go that way. And uh, <laughs>
1: b- by uh, Harari. And I, I think it's an extremely important book, um... The, Have the, you seen the follow-up? I haven't read the follow-up. He's uh, gotten more Homo pessimistic. Yeah. It's
2: much darker. Yeah, much more this dark. This book is very interesting. Yeah. I don't agree with everything in it. Yeah. Um, but at least there's some recognition that humanity is special, and uh, Homo Deus is like, all right, now here's how everything goes to hell in the future.
1: But I think I think the fundamental insight of Sapiens is um, is really important, which is— you know, the success of the species has been our ability to collaborate around abstract concepts. Our, you know, our communication is obviously key, the development of language and all that, but Mm -hmm. then the ability to collaborate and coordinate our behavior around abstract concepts, concepts of God, concepts of nation, of state, of community. I mean, these are all abstractions. Mm -hmm. Um, You couldn't you know, you can't visualize the nation except through symbols and through, uh, you know, a summary of its history and a, a, a set of objectives that you might believe are important to it to achieve in the future. Um, and, you know, to me, that's the big challenge uh, of the, that the country faces is an ability, again, to figure out how to collaborate together on a common future. Uh, across this very diverse country,
2: hmm. quite quite interesting. Um, what are you excited about right now? What what do you think is a fascinating um, issue or topic uh, these days?
1: You know, with the New York Giants having gone one and four <laughs> to start this season, I'm I'm just so depressed. Um, it's very hard to focus on anything other than that for the moment. I'm still licking my wounds. So. Uh,
2: so let's talk about a time you failed and what you learned from that experience um yeah so i
1: i was in as a young lawyer uh not so young i was uh, handling my first major cross-border restructuring and um, the creditors were represented by one of the greats of the bankruptcy bar, Leonard Rosen at Wachtell, Rosen Lipton and
2: Katz. Sure, he's the Rosen in Wachtell. Yeah,
1: and he was just a gentleman and a scholar and a wonderful person. And uh, we were having a dialogue as to how we were going to land this company in a restructuring. He representing the creditors, me representing the debtors, and um, and we were we had as you can only have with Leonard a kind of gentlemanly disagreement with regard to sort of what the end game was, who was going to end up owning the company and how we were going to restructure it. And uh, we were resisting putting the company in front of a judge uh, too soon until we had an agreement with the creditors because most bankruptcies are, are less expensive and less time-consuming uh, if, a if more it's or less... pre-packed, it's, right. right? The judge is there to confirm what everyone's agreed rather than to mediate the dispute ongoing. Right. And um, so we were resisting filing it, and Leonard thought that you know we were being irrational and uh, impudent, and, um, and so he did something that I didn't believe could be done. He filed an involuntary petition. He, the creditors put the company into bankruptcy in Canada, and under Canadian law, I had been advised by my Canadian co-counsel, This was not uh, a procedure available to creditors. And so Leonard picked up the phone. So he called me one morning. He said, I think um, you need to be in Toronto this afternoon. And I said, why? He said, because we have put the company into a CCAA proceeding in um, the Ontario Superior Courts this morning. And I said, you can't do that. He said, well, Well, we we just (laughs) did. Uh, And so... um, you know the lesson the (laughs) failure was a failure of imagination a (laughs) failure to realize that the law is not a given but something that is created and constantly created every day a little a little more flexible than you
2: imagine exactly That, that that's quite quite interesting uh so what do you do for fun other than be a terrible golfer
1: so I hike. Um, I've got a group of friends that we've gone on various, you know, trips across around the world. You know, hiking and exhausting ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's been uh, you know. Any place interesting yeah, recently? We went to we went to Norway last two last year or the year I was before. And just we were,
2: discussing Norway uh, last night. That's yeah, amazing.
1: Up and down the fjord country. It was gorgeous. The really, food was spectacular, and we had a stopover. Uh, on the way to the hike in Oslo, and on the back w- on, and then on uh, coming back in Stockholm. And Stockholm is just an amazing city, really, an amazing city. And I've these two countries, been. and these two countries actually um, really um, st- for for Americans, mm-hmm. um, and particularly you know, given our current dispute about the role of government right. and inequality. A trip to these countries should be mandatory because they have um, national health care. They have, um, you know, subsidized higher education. They have um, retirement. uh, They have affordable housing uh, Mm -hmm. subsidies, maternity Uh, leave, paternity leave. All of that. All of those basic social system supports. And yet, they're dynamic economies with entrepreneurship and growth mm-hmm. rates that rival ours. Now, they're small, homogeneous countries. They don't have the um, many of the challenges we have in establishing uh, common uh, commonality. But mm-hmm. but these are, you know, what the right would call social welfare states that are functioning. Um, uh, where the gap between the richest and the poorest is only three times, not the three hundred times wow. it is in the United States, um, and yet they've maintained a sense of entrepreneurialism and dynamism in their economy. the 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 nanny state is not necessarily, um, you know, deterring uh, dynamism and entrepreneurship in the economy.
2: Hmm. So- sounds fast. I've been to Helsinki. I've been to Copenhagen. I've never, uh, never been to Stockholm. Um, I assume you do that in the summer. And not <laughs> Yes, to. exactly. Um, so if some young lawyer or recent college grad or millennial came to you and said they were thinking about a career in restructuring and that aspect of banking, what sort of advice would you give them?
1: Well, it's a choice, just, just as we were talking about before, it's a choice between business school and law school. I'd say go to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, get uh, firm grounding in, uh, in the law. Um, you know, it's been a great career for me. Uh, y- it, you're, uh, y- the, I like being a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, each of these restructurings is different, as I said before. But, you know, in effect, you're taking something and, uh, and you know, making something out of a failure. And um, you know, and sometimes the something is just redeploying the capital and liberating the capital that's involved in a bad business. Um, but most of the time, you know, you're you're figuring out what went wrong and fixing it. Mm-hmm. Uh and saving, you know, capital and jobs and uh and you know, so you can kind of feel like you did something good.
2: Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of corporate restructuring today that you wish you knew 25, 30 years ago when you were really first getting started?
1: Well, it, you know, we, this has been we, – we talked a little bit about the deregulation of the financial system. I mean, the, the, the consequence of that is we went into the 1980s with a bank-centric financial system mm-hmm. where credit intermediation was primarily conducted by banks. We ended, uh, we came out of the financial crisis after 40 years of deregulation with a market-centered funding system. And um, the development of the secondary markets and the secondary credit markets. Mm -hmm. um, The shadow banking. The shadow banking system, starting with, you know, the junk bonds created by Mike Milliken in the late Mm -hmm. 80s. Um, You know, we have a bond market that now dominates credit intermediation. And, we, and the bond market has greater and greater transparency with secondary, you know, with pr- trades mm-hmm. all the time, and prices, so there's, a, there's the illusion of fair value created by you know, the day-to-day pricing of a given right. bond. Um, and that, that, and pricing
2: not, uh, hold, that pricing may not hold. And
1: that pricing may not hold, and it may reflect supply-demand dynamics rather than fundamental value. Um, it may reflect, you know, the interest rate policy of the Federal Reserve as compared to where it was at a, when the bond was originally issued. Um, there are lots of, it, but 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 market participants today who live by their marks and are judged by their marks and are measured by their marks and are compensated by their marks. Um, that is a that is the biggest difference, right? I used to sit in rooms in the nineteen eighties with banks and insurance companies and talk about fundamental value. And the mark didn't matter. What they were trying to do is maximize the recovery of their position. Mm-hmm. And today you sit in a room with traders who are trying to who are trying to maximize their liquidity and their and, and their mark. And very different from fundamental value.
2: Hmm. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Jim Milstein. He is currently the co-chairman of Guggenheim Securities, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law, and former chief restructuring officer at Treasury. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 225 such conversations we've had over the past four-plus years. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Medina Parwana is my producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.